Good morning, Village. How y'all doing today? Happy Sunday. We all know what today is, right? Outreach team meeting today. <laughs> oh, there's something else happening a little later. Yeah, okay. Um, just want to say hi to Linda. Linda, I'm going to steal your post. So um, I know you're watching online. I'm going to steal your post. I just want you to know I am gruntled to be with you guys today. And I, furthermore, I'm gruntled at the dinner my wife made me last night. What, what, what feelings does that, that give? Now, some of you saw her post, so don't go, say what? Yeah, it's like, what is he saying? Um, because, because what does that feel like it means? Not happy, right? Because of the tone, because, because we think of a very similar word, right? What's the word that we, we think of? Disgruntled. By the way, the little dis at the beginning of, of disgruntled means disgruntled is the opposite of gruntled. So what might gruntled mean? Happy, content, pleased with. And so if I say I am gruntled to be with you this morning, it's I am happy to be with you guys this morning. I am content to be with you guys. I am pleased to be with you guys. This is awesome. But just a little change and just a little change of our perception can change how we interpret the whole phrase, how we take that whole thing. A wrong conclusion can lead to all kinds of wrong emotions and wrong actions and things like that. And that's just a silly little example, but I wanted to use it today to introduce the story of Saul Paul, Saul's conversion. We've had a little glimpse of him as he held the robes, held the the cloaks of people that were stoning Stephen. So we already had this glimpse of a guy that is giving approval to make Stephen the first martyr of the Christian church. Our view of him is very low. But one of the things that I want us to do this morning as we come to the text is start asking, okay, why was Paul like that? Saul, we'll call him this morning. He wasn't called Paul until a little bit after this. Why was Saul like that? What was he like? And then what did Jesus do to change him? And the point today is that Jesus and the truth of Jesus, the light of Jesus changes everything and gets us back on track. But when we come to these wrong conclusions, and for us, most of us are believers, and so this story, I I think one of the applications is where we can see Paul's misguided direction was. We can take this misinformation, we can take some of these conclusions, and we can make false assumptions about each other. We can make false assumptions about the church, and we can destroy relationships, and we can destroy things. And so... We, we choose, and for those that aren't believers, sometimes they choose to not follow Jesus. They refuse to follow Jesus also because of wrong views, wrong views of God's holiness, wrong views of the penalty of sin and how serious sin is, wrong views on what Jesus has done, a wrong view that we just don't believe Jesus' way is better because I know best. And we are so wrong. We can't save ourselves. We can't earn forgiveness. Our way doesn't work. And so we come to Acts chapter 9 this morning. And turn there if you would. Acts chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's a black hardcover one under one of the chairs right around you. Please take that. Look up Acts 9. If you don't have one at home, take that home with you as our gift to you. We want you to have God's Word. But as you, you heard in our reading service last week, Acts 1 through 8 have been about the, the first part of the gospel going out. First in Jerusalem, the church was formed. And then Acts chapter 8, it spread to Judea and Samaria. And so we see Acts 1 8, the key verse of the whole book, sort of working itself out in the outline of the book. And in chapter 9, now we come to the conversion of Saul. And this opens the door to the man that is going to take the gospel to the rest of the world. And so I've, I've, from 9 on, I've considered this the last part of Acts 1-8 of the gospel going to the ends of the earth. And I think it's appropriate to start with how God starts to put the pieces in place, right? He starts, to say, he, he starts here by saving Saul, giving him a purpose, and, and we see how that's happening. And we come today to really a, a, a common story, a story that if any of you were in Sunday school growing up, you heard. 
And I hope that we come back to the text today and see a whole bunch of truths and a whole bunch of nuggets that maybe we had never considered before. And maybe today God can use that to remind us of the the beauty of our own salvation, remind us of the miracle of our own conversion, no matter what story you have to tell, whether you were were saved at four out of the church nursery or whether you were saved at 34 out of all kinds of stuff, conversion is a miracle. Salvation is a miracle. But I also hope the text helps us start to evaluate, am I acting on any false beliefs? Am I acting in the best interest of the church from those beliefs? And, and, And are those based in God's Word? So if I had to summarize today's text, Saul's false beliefs and roadblocks to following Jesus are confronted by a very alive Jesus. And Saul is saved to continue spreading the gospel. And so Saul meets God on the road to Damascus. And God is setting his people in place for the spread of the gospel. And so we'll look at, at the, the text in a ver- variety of sections. Four different points we want to talk about this morning. And, and the first one, just working through the text, Saul was convinced of the wrong things. Saul was convinced of the wrong things. Let's read verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And so the the camera now zooms over. We we end 1 through 8, and you, you get one of those Star Wars little flashes where it goes from scene to scene. And now we zoom in on Saul and what he's doing. And it starts by saying that he is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. What does the word still mean there? What does that imply? It's been already happening, right? He's already doing it, and he's just continuing what he's already doing. I'm assuming that's what I heard, because I heard a lot of... Um, And so Saul has continued from the time when he was holding the clothes to Stephen. He has continued breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And, And we have to... We have to ask, why, was, why did he hate Christians so much? What did they do to him? Did they, did they steal his lunch money or something? I don't know. But no, there's a, there's a whole understanding. And we get this from, from Saul's later writings, his conversion. Actually, he tells the story two more times in Acts. And we get some of that. And then in, in the um, epistles, he talks about it more because this was where his life changed. And all of his assumptions were confronted. See, Paul, he even described, Paul, Saul, Saul described himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a student of God's word of the Old Testament. He was devoted and zealous for God. And that's why he was killing Christians. And you're like, what? Now, now keep in mind, he's zealous for what he believed and had been taught that, that they were still waiting for the Messiah and that anyone that blasphemes against the Lord is to be judged, is to be stopped. And this Christian, these Christian crazies, number one, they say the Messiah's already come. Well, that can't be true because we killed him and he's dead. Wrong assumption number two. And so he is trying to preserve Judaism, thinking he is acting in the best interests of God while destroying the church or attempting to destroy the church. He thought what he was doing was a good thing, ravaging the church. He was zealous for what he thought was truth. But he was wrong. He was wrong. He could even go back to the Old Testament. And Deuteronomy says, anybody who hangs on a tree is cursed. Jesus hung on a tree, so he's cursed. He can't be the Messiah. There were all these things that he had used to make a case against Christianity. But his initial, his initial reasons were wrong, that Jesus was dead and that he wasn't the Messiah. And then everything else just built on that, and, and he built this whole case based on false assumptions. This is what happens to us even now. I see it all the time where we come up with some nuggets of things that are false assumptions and then we get other people that agree with us and we build this case. Then we start to filter everything through those assumptions and we completely go the wrong way. That's what happened here. 
Saul was blind to the truth, and that led him, in in verse 2, to horribly wrong conclusions and actions. So, false belief, it's a cult, they're blaspheming against God. His conclusion and his actions are, I have to stop this for God's sake. And so in, in verse 2 he says, he went, into verse 1, he went to the high priest, which probably was the same high priest, actually it was the same high priest that had convicted Jesus, by the way. So, so there's some um, you know, bias here. He goes to that high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he took this belief system, allowed other things to filter through it, to expand it. Now he's like, let me go. Let let me go get him. And he goes to the high priest, which probably means he's a pretty significant guy. And he says, let me go to Damascus. Now we need to understand a little bit where Damascus is, if I have a pointer. Um, Damascus was actually not in Israel. Um, Damascus was in Syria, even modern day Syria, And so basically from Jerusalem here by the Dead Sea, you'd go north to the Galilee and then hang a right and go up to Damascus, up through the Golan Heights. And um, the border is somewhere around here to Syria, present-day border. And Damascus was one of the largest cities in the known world of the time, in this area. It was a major trade route. And somehow uh, uh, the church was thriving there. Now, we should be asking ourselves the question right from the start. The church just started a few months ago. How is it already thriving in Damascus? And that is, that's just, it's fun to think about. Either Christians from Pentecost and from the, the founding of the church and when we had 5,000 come to Christ and then 10,000 men, either some of them had gone back home and, and people couldn't get them to be quiet about Jesus and so they, they started a church. Or this is a result of, of the persecution that we've studied about two, three weeks ago. And people were starting to spread. But whatever the case is, Christian, Christians went to Damascus. Now there's a foothold there. Enough of a foothold that Paul was willing to go 150 miles to go eradicate these people that were committing heresies against God Almighty, in his opinion. And so he zealously went after this. Galatians 1, 3-16, Paul is describing his, his attitude. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. I was really good at this. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. And you see, he was focusing on the wrong thing. He started down the wrong path. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, when he was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. And he's talking about, he's proving that his his salvation didn't come from man. But he acknowledges, I was zealous, but for the wrong thing. And I'm not saying this to justify Saul. I'm not saying to this, this to say, well, he was sincere, so it was okay that he was killing people. That's not at all what it is, but I'm trying to understand how do we get to this place? How do we get to a place where we are harming the church because of deception and because of things that we believe that aren't true? Because we've seen it happen many, many times. And like I said, we can take all kinds of things that Satan can use to, to whittle away at the foundation. He can use our preferences. And can you, he can use our preferences, and in our minds we start to think, well, these aren't preferences, this is truth. And then we get a couple other people around us that have the same preferences. And then we have a group. And then we're convinced we're right. And we're validated. And the more certain we are, the more likely we are to act on it. And as some of you, some of you might still be clinging to the hope that the 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl today. (laughs) They aren't. I don't care how much your opinion is validated. They aren't. They're not in the game. They lost already. But that's sometimes what we do with our our feelings and emotions. I have friends that are 49ers fans. Sort of friends that are are 49er fans. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) 
And, and they love their team. I was thinking of using Green Bay as my example, but I want to keep some of my friendships that are here. <laughs> That's a silly example of how we can, we can get so into our own opinions that, yeah, they wouldn't say the 49ers are in the, the game, but they are online saying they're still the best team. I'm like, they lost. <laughs> Facts matter. Facts matter. And so when we come to our opinions, especially as it involves the work of God in the church and about each other and the assumptions we make to each other, our starting point are facts matter. And so where do we go to get facts? Where do we go to get truth? And that almost always is not someone else's opinion that's a, that thinks the same way that we do. It's not about an echo chamber. Another way I see us doing this, even as believers, what, what, what Saul was doing is just looking at the world's philosophies and work, looking at the world's approaches. Secular psychology has all kinds of directions it's trying to take us, especially now, which ironically are almost all regurgitated from the 60s right now and have been proven that they don't work. But hey, let's try them again. And that, that applies to abortion, that applies to parenting, that applies to, to validating someone's feelings and how important that is nowadays, whether or not they're wrong, whether or not we have a sin nature. And, and all these things are being recycled and, and, and pushed on us, and, and then we start to believe some of them, and that starts to infiltrate the church. And we haven't stopped long enough to say, are these biblical? Are these biblical? You know, I, I hear more and more, well, it's, a, it's better for the world if I don't have kids. That's not biblical. And it's actually not true. All kinds of reasons for that. And, and we buy into a lot of these philosophies. The parenting one, I, I ache so much as I see some of the parenting philosophies now. And as a youth pastor for 25 years, I can tell you where those lead. Because I saw it. And we have to go back to what are biblical truths. What does the Bible say we should do? You know, for Saul, the source of his truth wasn't accurate. His assumption about Jesus wasn't accurate. Now, none of us are going around killing Christians. So he obviously took it to, to much greater degrees. But what's happening at the underneath the surface is the same. And so when 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 we start to, to feel angst at each other in God's church, as we start to feel angst about the bride of Christ, we've got to start asking, is this biblical? Is this from God? Because so many times it isn't. And here's how this works. And C.S. Lewis writes a lot about this. But if Satan can attack the foundation of what we believe, he doesn't have to attack where it goes. If you can attack the foundation and just get someone slightly off course, where it goes is going to take care of itself, right? So if I say my goal is to get to the thermostats in the back of the room, maybe make the room a little colder or something. Amen? No, sorry. Um, If my goal is to get there, I can just walk down this aisle, right? I'm fine. Everybody's happy. Everybody's a little cooler and, and we're good. If you put a blindfold on me, and this is what Satan does, he blinds us to truth and just tries to get us off. And if I, if I just get off this much and I start walking blindfolded this way, and I don't care if there's chairs or people, I'm just going to walk on you. Sorry, guys. This, yeah. I now am harming people, not because of, I believe, some lie out in the future, but because Satan was able to get me to believe something a little different here. This is what we've seen happen with the attack on creationism because that has so many repercussions for where it goes culturally. Like I said, parenting. This is having all kinds of repercussions in families right now. Um, Believes about marriage and not getting married till you're 30 is having all kinds of repercussions that are negative in in society right now because we're going the wrong direction. And, and it just had to be a wrong belief, sometimes with the right motives at the beginning. And, and, and sometimes these have some truths that probably need to be heard, but then it veers off. 
And we've got to be cautious. We've got to be cautious. You know, it, it can be as much as if I have someone that made some comment to me last Sunday, and, and you didn't, I wasn't here, so I'm safe. I was on vacation. Um, and, and so let's say some of you made some comment to me last night. Innocent. You were having a bad day. You had a migraine. And I go home and I say, Suze, you will never believe what, and I'm not going to say, I'm not going to pick someone. You will never believe what so-and-so said. And then we start to talk about it all week, and I can't believe they would say that. You know what? I don't think they've ever really liked you. Uh, and, and then I come next Sunday, and I'm supposed to minister with that person. Now a wrong belief, a wrong assumption not only has led me to harm one individual with my beliefs, but it has harmed the church because now ministry suffers. This is sin, guys. This is, this is debilitating to God's church. And so we have to fight this while holding the truth and while finding a way to hold each other accountable. So this isn't shut up and say nothing, but how do we evaluate truth? And we're going to get to that in the next point. Um, because we're going to see what Jesus did to Saul. Because Saul here is, is really struggling. But he doesn't think he is. I love the end of verse 2, by the way. Um, he, so he goes off to Damascus so that if he finds any belonging to the way, men or women, doesn't matter gender, you're going to prison, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. The chief priest, by the way, gave him permission and sent letters to the synagogues there to allow this to happen. I just love, this is the first time that Christianity is called the way. This is the way. (laughs) Some of you get the reference. (laughs) I I couldn't pass that one up. (laughs) If you don't, watch The Mandalorian sometime. (laughs) But this is the way. And, And I love that description because isn't that the truth of God's word? It's the way. It's the truth. And, and it's the way that, that we should follow. And I love that it's the way. Not this is a way. This is the way. And, and so I know that Luke's just recording what they were called. But isn't that awesome? I would love for our church to be called the way. Not just for the Mandalorian. But um, <laughs> let, let's move on. I wanted to, to, to set the scene, though, of where Saul's head was. He's thinking Jesus was just a man. He's thinking it's a lie that he's risen from the dead, probably. We don't know that for sure. But he's, he's definitely thinking this is heresy and Christianity is a lie. And so he's like, What's the, I'm going to take care of the lie. So what would the best way for God to confront his lie be? For Jesus to show up, right? If, so, if we say someone's dead and they walk in, that's a pretty convincing proof. And so we get to verses 3 through 6. And point number 2, the light of Jesus confronted the untruths Saul believed. The light of Jesus confronted the untruths that Saul believed. Now as he went on his way, which by the way, we just said the Christians were called what? The way. And this is just sort of fun. And then we come back to Saul. Now as he went on his way, I I just think that's beautiful use of language there. He approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, probably in the middle of the day. Um, Paul calls this later as brighter than the sun. Um, This light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. But rise into the city and you will be told what you are to do. And so Jesus shows up in his light, the truth of of who he is. He confronts Saul's belief system. He confronts the very basic elements that started him down a wrong path. See, the issue again, was it is an issue that he was taking Christians to prison, but that started much earlier with a lie that he believed. And so Jesus confronts the foundation. I am alive. I am here. And we know from other scripture that 1 Corinthians 15, 8, for instance, Paul says, Last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, 
I am what I am. And so the implication here is this light came is that Jesus showed up and, and Saul saw Jesus. So it wasn't just a voice, but he saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Now, now picture what's happening. They're on this road, and, and it's not Euclid or Chapman. It's, it's, a, it's a dusty road, but a main road. Middle of the day, it's hot. This light comes that is blinding light. Jesus shows up to Saul, and he starts to hear a voice. Now we're going to find out <clears throat> everyone else hears noise, but they can't understand it. This is a message for Saul. And he starts by and, and, and Saul appropriately falls to the ground. When, when, when light is used in this way, it's almost always consistent with divine revelation, with God's glory showing up. And throughout this text, we see a contrast between blindness and sight, darkness and light, lies, falsehood, and truth. That's the contrast that's throughout this whole thing. And here, this lie, this false belief system has kept Saul from turning to Jesus. And so Jesus shows up and, and he talks to him. He, he says, why are you persecuting me? And he emphasizes, he says it twice, why are you going after my people? And what's interesting is Jesus is equating, by the way, persecuting God's people with persecuting him. Because the church is, is Christ's body. We're his bride, but we're his body. And so to, to attack his people is to attack him, is what he's saying to Saul. And Saul doesn't recognize him. It's going to be important later in the passage. Saul doesn't recognize him, but he says, Who are you, Lord? And, and there's debate. Is that Lord just like, Sir? It's, it's probably more of a divine. You're divine, but I don't know who you are. Who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. And at that moment, Saul had to make a choice. Is my entire belief system wrong? Is everything I've thought about this man wrong? Number one, he's alive. Number two, he's showing up as a divine being. He's God. If either of those two things are wrong, where is Saul left? And so he can either fight it and rebel or he could humbly give in. And so Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. It's the real voice of Jesus. It's saying, I'm alive and you're fighting me. And so then Jesus in verse 6 gives an instruction. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. So now Saul has the choice. Do I obey? Do I follow? So he, he's, he's believed wrong things and gone down the wrong path, harming God's church. Jesus shows up and gives him truth. And so now he has a choice. Will I accept truth or will I in pride continue on my own way? Interestingly enough, he, he's, we're going to find out he's blind and he's told to rise and enter the city, be told what you are to do. He's being told what to do by somebody, a man who tells other people what to do. And so this is attacking his self-centeredness. It's attacking his pride. It's attacking his self-reliance. It's saying, wait and do what I ask. Where else have we seen go and wait? Acts chapter 1, after the ascension. What did Jesus tell the disciples? Go and wait. So many times he tells us that. Follow what you know, obey what you know, and wait for me to do the rest. You don't have to know the full picture, which is really hard for me to say. I like to know the full picture. And so here, we, we, we start to see this picture of Paul's belief system being confronted for him to bring him to salvation. But the Holy Spirit still works this way in us. And we have to be humble enough to test our beliefs. We have to be humble enough to go back to Scripture and say, I may not know the full story. I may have started with a wrong assumption. What does God's Word say about this? And so when I said that we have to have some way, that, a corrective, some way to stay on course, that corrective has to be God's Word. And then I would, I would, I would add on to that older people that know God's Word and are going to bring us back to God's Word. What is the truth of God here? And, and we can't just base that on, 
on someone else that just happens to agree with us but doesn't go back to God's word. We can't just base this on pragmatism, which is really the question, does this work? You know, for, for Saul, if he was basing his belief system on pragmatism, he'd be like, yeah, this works. Judaism's worked for thousands of years. We've got to keep doing this and get rid of the Christian scum. Judaism works better when no Christians are pestering us. But no, the, the issue is what is truth. Now, Saul got it from Jesus' mouth, which is really cool. For us, we need to always be going back to Scripture and evaluating our assumptions, evaluating our conclusions, evaluating the actions that come out of those. Is this true? Can I support with Scripture what I'm convinced of, what I'm convicted of, what I'm acting on, what I'm upset about? You know, we could come and say, we should paint this wall purple. And you're standing in the way of God's work if we don't. It's a silly example again, but what basis does that have? None. It's, it's silly. And it, it doesn't matter if you believe it, and it doesn't matter if you have five others that believe it. It's a false belief. And so we, we check with Scripture. And in Scripture, we see worship doesn't matter what paint is on the wall. Worship matters when people of, uh, that are loving Jesus and coming together love Jesus together and study His Word and pray together and sing together. That's what happens. That's worship. And so we, we, we come with point number two humbly to say, what does God's Word say? Now, I, I would extend this to even lies we believe about ourselves. What are ways Satan would keep us from doing God's work? One might be, well, you're just one person. You can't make a difference for Jesus. Why be part of Project Touch? Why be part of Living Nativity? And, and, and there's a whole other thing. You're just one person. Don't worry about it. Other people will do it. And the truth is, we're not just one person. As we come together, we can make a difference for Jesus. You know, Satan might say to us, you know what? You're a sinner too. How can you share the gospel? How can you tell someone else they're a sinner? Really? Let me remind you of your past. Let me remind you of the things that you did and, and you think you're better than them to share the gospel with them and that's a lie that Satan will use to keep us from sharing the gospel. See, the truth is, by God's grace, Jesus' blood covered every one of those sins. And our story is even better because it's a story of the magnitude of God's salvation, like Saul's. He was killing Christians. And God called him to share the gospel. Point number three as we go on. Saul humbly obeyed Jesus rather than doing his own thing. Saul humbly obeyed Jesus rather than doing his own things. I know there's overlap between all these points, but I'm just sort of trying to walk through the text. In verse 7, the men who were traveling with him, with, with Saul, stood speechless. Hearing the voice, and the wording from looking at all the different accounts is, is they heard the noise. And that word for voice means noise, doesn't mean understanding. So they heard someone saying something, and I think of the Charlie Brown cartoons, wah, 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 wah. So they're hearing something like that, okay? They don't quite understand what it is. They're hearing the voice, but they see no one. Sort of creepy. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So he's blinded, he sees Jesus, he hears Jesus, he's on the ground, he finally has enough strength to get up, he opens his eyes, and it's just black. He's blind. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so in this case, he did what Jesus said. And he had to tell the guys to do what Jesus said because they couldn't understand the voice. And so he says, take me to Damascus. And, and, and some more instruction is coming. And he, he ends up at a place and he can't eat. He can't drink. He doesn't for three days. That could have been from the trauma of the whole situation because this is a pretty amazing situation. Um, it also, I, I think, as we see later in verse 11 that he's praying. I think he's devoting himself to prayer. He's repenting here. He's dealing with the... It, it rocks us when our whole belief system is wrong. 
It's hard to get over. But he humbly is obeying and following Jesus rather than doing his own thing. This man who was powerful, this man who was top of the Pharisees, is led by the hand in humility, in, in, in a humble state. If he could eat or drink, someone else would have had to feed him. And I think when I look at this one, what would it take for God to break my pride? I can be very convinced of what I think is true. And, and what would it take for God to break my pride? For, for Saul, it was blindness and an encounter that completely rocked his belief system and humbled him. Because he was convinced of the wrong thing, and we have to admit we can be too. The truth convicted him, and so we should try to go back to God's Word, but ultimately we've got to come with a humble spirit like this. And this powerful man was humbled and reduced to dependence on God. And so then we come to the final point, and this is where the story is just really cool. God removes Saul's physical and spiritual blindness and gives him his calling through a courageous, willing servant. Let me repeat that. God removes Saul's physical and spiritual blindness and gives him his calling through a courageous, willing servant. And I know I probably didn't have to have the last part, the courageous, willing servant, but I think Ananias is a great part of the story. So it's in the notes. Um, God works through courageous obedience. Even if it doesn't make sense to us, God works through the truth of his word. Some of our belief systems will make more sense to us than God's word. God works through his word, not through what makes sense to us. And so here in verse 10, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, remember what Paul or Saul said when, when Jesus spoke to him? I don't know you. Here, Jesus, and, and the implication of the text and the other tellings of this is that the Lord here is Jesus. Jesus said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And that should remind us of Samuel in the Old Testament. Here I am, Lord. He recognized him. This is a man of God, a man of prayer, a man that knew Jesus' voice. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. What? That's what my answer would be if I was Ananias. And that's what his answer is going to be. He knows who Saul is. He knows what Saul has done to the church. He knows why Saul came. Jesus, you're really, really? Let's talk about this. But it's just so cool because... The Lord is orchestrating, drawing Saul to himself and his salvation. By the way, just another sort of fun play on word. Rise and go to the street called straight. Remember the way, his way. And now we have uh, the the way again. In the house of Jesus, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he is praying. Don't miss that end of verse 11 there. That's why I I am confident when I say Saul's heart is changing. He's praying. He's seen a vision. God has has graciously told him, Ananias is going to come. He's going to lay hands on you that you might receive sight. But then in verse 13, Ananias answered, like I said, What? Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And, and the sense here, and, 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 and I, I read a lot of different opinions on this, but they all sort of came to the same thing. The sense here isn't someone that's rebelling against God, but asking God an honest question. God, are, are, are you sure? Imagine being in Ananias' shoes. I mean, we can read over this quickly, but imagine being in his shoes. He, he has heard, he knows people that have been persecuted, that have been beaten, He's heard about the deaths. He's heard about all this stuff. And he's asked to go help this guy. Enemy of the state, number one. Or of Christianity, rather. And, and 
And so we, we have this tension if Ananias will obey. He's evil. He has the authority to take us away. By the way, we have a couple more words for Christians in there. You have saints and those who call on his name. We get a lot of different little Easter eggs in this text. Um, and so Ananias is thinking, it's a trap. What if, what if Saul is still here to do his job? And what if this is a ploy to get the Christian leaders to come in? That's what I'd be thinking, right? Because I, I would say, how can he change this fast? It makes no sense. And we're right, it makes no sense except through the grace of Christ. Only Jesus could change this man this much. And so in verse 15, Jesus reassures him. But the Lord said to him, Go, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He is going to spread the gospel to places it has never been. He is chosen for this. And then he adds verse 16, which is just a a chilling prophecy of what's going to come. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. God's plan doesn't always make sense. This isn't who I would choose. But God had a plan, and it was to reach the world with the gospel. I think one of the other lessons out of this is salvation is for everyone. There is no one in this room that has done worse things than Saul. And if God can save Saul, then the blood of Jesus Christ can cover anyone. There is no amount of sin that you have done that is beyond the grace of God, that is beyond the covering of Jesus' blood. It's not like he has just... This is why Jesus had to be God because he had to be infinite for his blood to be able to cover the sins of the world. If he's not God, we're not saved. But he is, and his blood is enough to cover the sins of the world. Even Saul's, and even yours, and even mine. And I praise God for that. I praise God for that grace. And so don't let Satan use the lie of You're just too far gone for for God to save you. Nonsense. That's where God does his best work and most amazing work. And so we read on in verse 17. Because Ananias has a choice, right? Verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He got up and he went. He obeyed. Okay, you told me to go. I'm going. He goes, enters the house, and, and I can just picture the first steps in. Picture the door opening. Picture the steps in, Saul, not knowing what you're going to expect, but he believed and he followed what God asked him to do. And actually, his first address wasn't Saul. What does it say his first address was? Brother Saul. He took Jesus at his word that this man now is a believer, and he calls him brother. Don't miss those little little words that are in the text because that is significant for the attitude that Ananias came with. He's coming with a welcoming, including attitude that says, okay, if God saves someone, they're family. They're in. And so he comes. He says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. And that's a, it's a picture not only of physically regaining his sight, but spiritually he has, the blinders have been off and now he knows the truth of, of Jesus. He knows the truth of God's plan. Then he rose and was baptized. The very next thing Saul does, they, they baptize him. And again, like I've talked before, Baptism is a public declaration of saying, Jesus is my God. I believe in Jesus. And it's a public acceptance from the church of saying, you're one of us. So important, so beautiful, the the imagery. and, And so beautiful why we still practice it. It's someone confessing that their belief in Jesus Christ and the church confessing their acceptance of them as family. If you're not baptized, we have a baptism class coming up. It's a great way to follow Jesus in obedience. 
and, and, and commit to following him. So Saul got up. He was baptized, identified with the church. This was huge for Saul. This was the man that was, was persecuting the church, going after the church. And now he gets up and does the most public act he can do to say, oh, by the way, now I'm one of them. This is, this is burning the ships, so you can't go home. And he did. And he was filled with the Holy Spirit. In 19, in taking food, he was strengthened. Again, in culture, to eat with someone was to be accepted. There's community here. And this just talks about that the church brings him in. And that had to be hard. It had to be hard. But what was God doing here? Number one, God was saving a lost soul. And God can save any lost soul. He can save any sinner. And if you're listening today, if you're here today, and you haven't given your life to Jesus, Jesus really can save you. He really is still alive. He died on the cross, taking the penalty for your sin on Himself. He took your punishment. Because we all deserve it. He He took your punishment, and three days later rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. It's why he could talk to Paul, why he could talk to Ananias. And so we serve a living God. And what he says is, repent and believe in me. Give your life to me, and you are my sons and daughters. And if you've never done that, it is the most, it is the best decision you'll ever make. And I've got to say, it's not the best decision because you're going to be healthy and wealthy and have all this. What was Paul called to? I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so the calling is not one of our own convenience and our own comfort. The calling is to be part of the work that Jesus is doing, no matter the cost. But it's worth it. It's worth it. And so we see here, number one, the calling of an individual to Jesus. We also see... Jesus giving a calling to Saul. And he is giving Saul a mission to spread the gospel and putting that peace into place. And we see that from what Jesus says to Ananias. He is going to be my chosen instrument. And so God uses this aha moment with Saul, this moment where he peels away the the unbelief, he peels away the, the wrong beliefs, and shows him the truth, he uses this experience as a way to call him to greater service. And and he does the same thing today, even with us as believers, because as believers we can look at this text and say, yes, salvation is amazing, praise God. I was saved when I was four, praise God. When I was four this happened. But it continues to speak to us of are we still following our calling? Are we, are we following some wrong beliefs? Have those led to some things that get in the way of our calling? Because God will use a, a humbling moment, and those of you that have had your pride smashed, He uses those moments where our pride is smashed, that humbling moment, to reveal truth to us and usually to call us to greater service. And so usually it's not just to correct us, but He's calling us to something beyond ourselves. He's calling us to something amazing if we will humble ourselves and come to Him. And Paul experienced that. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. And it, he's not directly referencing his conversion, but i got to think it's in the back of his mind as he writes this. And listen to 4.4, 4, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case... The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And he writes about his conversion, that it was this moment where he went from being blinded. Well, he's he's writing to them about salvation. I think he's thinking of his conversion. Where he went from being blinded by the philosophy of this world, and he saw the light, the truth of the glory of God. One last thing I want us to consider. Don't lose Ananias in the story. Ananias is a no-name. He's nobody. 
Well, we, we have his name, so I guess no name isn't quite right. It's, by the way, it's not the same Ananias from Ananias and Sapphira earlier in Acts. There's some things in that story that make sh- we're pretty sure it's not the same person. That one's dead. <laughs> this, this is a, a man that is just serving God faithfully in seeming obscurity. And don't lose sight of what faithful service to God means to the kingdom. What if Ananias disobeyed? What if he didn't go? Now, now God would have brought someone else. I, I have firm confidence in God's sovereignty in that way. But God used someone that was just faithful to obey to help Saul come to the Lord. Did Saul perhaps have an influence on the church? Yeah. God used him to to spread the church to the known world. Used him to write most of the New Testament or much of the New Testament that we have. Don't ever underestimate what your faithfulness in everyday life might do. Consider this list of nobodies. One of the authors that I was reading had this list. I'm like, I've got to share that. Consider this list of nobodies. John Stoppitz. You guys know who he is? Probably Stoppitz. My my accent is all off. He's the man that led Martin Luther to Christ. What about John Eglin? You guys heard of him? He was instrumental in the conversion of Spurgeon. Edward Kimball, he's just a shoe salesman. He happened to be D.L. Moody's spiritual mentor. Mordecai Ham, he's a little-known evangelist guy who preached the night that Billy Graham gave his life to Christ. Men who just were faithfully obscure and God used to change the world. See, Saul wasn't the only one that changed the world. Ananias changed the world. Isn't that cool? And so don't ever think, why, why have you put me in this little, little life I'm in, God? I want to do something great for you. You never know who the person you disciple will become, who the person you share the gospel with in the grocery store will become. Your conversion is miraculous. And God wants us to share that with others, even in ordinary life. Let's pray. Lord God, help us to tell our stories. Lord, help us to, to tell how we know you, why we, why we know you, why we follow you, Lord God. I pray that you would, you would help us to be bold for, for you, for your name. Lord, I pray as well as your church that we'd be faithful to your word. Lord, I am chilled by the story of Saul who was so convinced he was right and oh so wrong. Lord, but for the grace of God, go any of us. And so I pray that you would reveal to me and reveal to anyone, reveal to us as a church when we aren't basing our our direction on your word. Help us to be people of the way, the truth. You said you were the way, the truth, the life. Help that to be what we're about to, God. In your precious name, amen.